You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good evening. Turning your Bible to Genesis chapter 20. We're going to be looking at this entire chapter tonight. We will be, by chapter count, 40% done with Genesis uh, by the time this evening is over. And so, uh, at that rate, by the time I retire, we'll be done with Genesis. But it is an important book. You never get past it, really. It, it is, the, in a very real sense, the table of contents for the rest of the Bible. And that's why it's very important, in my estimation, that we spend time in this first book of the canon. And so as we continue to set our hope on Jesus, let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our time in the preaching of the word. Lord, thank you that we do have a Savior whose name is Jesus, who is worthy of our faith, our hope, and our love. We indeed confess tonight, we set our hope on him, but we recognize as well, Lord, that our hope needs to be strengthened. And I pray that even through this text tonight, you would use that to nurture and, and nourish and strengthen our hope. And we confess that it's a living hope. And we ask your blessings on this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have mourned. Uh, we have been outraged, enraged. We have prayed uh, over the moral atrocities that we have seen in Israel over the last weeks. I've heard so many different pundits. I've heard pundits uh, who warn that because of our own insecure borders, we are as vulnerable here as Israel was uh, last Saturday. Now, from the human perspective, that certainly concerns me. Conversely, I watched a pundit from Poland assert that because their borders are secure and are closed to refugees, they are safe. But in a, a world filled with sin and rebellion in every human heart, can we really gauge how safe we are? Where is safety found in a world opposed to the living God? And so various people have different solutions and remedies and, and strategies. Maybe we uh, need a better counter-terrorist system in place, stronger intelligence. We most certainly need to be more attentive to our borders other would argue that we need a better profile in the world with, with Muslim countries and Muslim neighbors, and, and we will find our security in, in these kind of strategies. But here's the question. Why would I bring that up in a text like Genesis 20? Well, because Abraham felt a whole lot like we do sometimes. Uh, he is sensing where he is, where he has pilgrimed or pilgrimaged. There is no fear of God with the people there. And, and he's afraid. 
But here's the thing. Instead of looking upward, instead of looking vertically, he looks horizontally and he looks inwardly like we often do. And he became an unprincipled pragmatist. And as a result, God takes him uh, to the school of discipline. And, and this is important to us because this is our tendency as well. And that's why our text is so important to us. We will not find our security in this world, but in God alone. And you know why that's the case? Because at the end of the day, terrorism is not our biggest enemy. The potential for terrorism is not our biggest enemy. As we saw this morning, our biggest problem is our own sin because it is capable of not only destroying us, it's capable of destroying those around us and making us worthy of the just judgment of God. And Abraham is in need to learn this lesson because there is a severe test of faith coming in chapter 22. It's a more significant test of faith than we even see in Genesis 20. And, and so God is taking him to school by these providential circumstances to prepare him for that test. Now, before we get into the passage, you remember back in chapter 12, there was a famine in, in the land. And, and Abraham, and I use the, the figure of a loser's lean, um, the loser's lean uh, in, in sports and, or with our coaches was that if you are tired and you're running and, you, and you're out of breath, one thing they wouldn't allow us to do is engage in the loser's lean because for two reasons. You don't want your opponent to see that you're tired. Secondly, it cuts off air to your diaphragm. So actually it's counterproductive to engage in the loser's lean. So you have to do something that's counterintuitive. Put your hands behind your head and expand your diaphragm, though that is very painful when it's 120 degrees outside and there seems to be no oxygen well Abraham had engaged in the loser's lane there's a famine in the land rather than trusting God trusting in the promises of God he goes to Egypt and every time God's people go to Egypt it's not a good thing all right and and there he is he's encountered with the Pharaoh and and because he fears uh, for his life he compromises his wife and says it's a partial truth but it's also uh, a partial truth masquerading as a whole truth is a non-truth. He says, this is my sister because uh, she was his half-sister. And Pharaoh almost compromised his wife. We're going to see that again today. It's a remarkable thing to see this besetting sin in this great man of faith. But the first thing we're going to see right here in this passage is this relapse, Abraham's besetting sin. Look with me in verse 1. So from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Now, we don't know why he moved here, uh, but we do know that Gerar is actually a region south of Gaza. Gaza's been in the news, which was inhabited at the time by people who would later emerge as the Philistines. 
So these are the people that Abraham is fearful of. When he, as we're going to see, he's going to, he's going to believe that there are no righteous people. They're all wicked in the land. Well, notice in verse two, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, this is quite stunning because the first time he was around 75, now he's 99 years old. And so at this old age, you think he would have grown out of this. He's committing the same sins. And our amazement is multiplied when you consider the shame that he experienced from Pharaoh back in Genesis 12 when he had said in verses 18 and 19, why did you not tell me she was your wife? Now, then here is your wife, take her and go. So he had been shamed by an, a pagan king. This righteous man, this believer, had been shamed by an unbelieving pagan king. But it was the custom of the time that if you had an unmarried woman sojourning in the land of a particular king, then that king had the right, not the God's lawful right, but the, uh, the, the right of custom to claim that woman as a part of his harem. That again uh, reminds us that Abraham was making these decisions that are not just costly to him, they're costly to his family. But we have to ask, why is this happening again? It's a broken record. And we know part of the answer from looking into our own hearts. Every single one of us recognize certain sin patterns. They may not be something that is overtly presumptuous where you're presuming upon the grace of God. Maybe something as simple as being uh, anxious in certain circumstances, worried in circumstances, uh, embittered or angry in certain circumstances, uh, or, or discouraged for that matter in certain circumstances. But all of us recognize certain sin patterns, all right, that each one of us are uniquely susceptible to. It's what Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 12 when he talks about uh, these besetting sins. John Currid, who's an Old Testament scholar, uh, says this, each of us has deeply worn channels of corrupt nature, besetting sins that refuse to let us go. They revisit us time and time again. Similar situations lead us to act in a similar vein. Each one of us has this. Now, uh, why we have it, why the Lord doesn't redeem us out of that completely the moment we're saved, that's another sermon for another day, and, and I will bring that up at some point. But sins that you have may not be other people's struggle, but they're deadly to you. They're deadly to us, old sin patterns that may have developed at a very young age that you will struggle with throughout your life if you do not cut them at the root. And Abraham's sin pattern, as we, we've already seen, uh, for instance, when he and Sarah couldn't get pregnant and Sarah says, well, have you thought about Hagar? Oh, good idea. 
And then earlier we saw with Egyptian Pharaoh, his besetting sin was his failure to trust God in times of pressure and to trust in himself instead. Yet we know this is a man of faith. I mean, he is the consummate man of faith. If you read in, in the New Testament, there are three different books of the New Testament. James and Romans and, and Hebrews that affirm that Abraham is our classic man of faith. And yet this great man of faith had these besetting sins. Now remember, Isaac is the son of promise. And he won't be born. In fact, he won't be conceived until chapter 21. So this is the chapter preceding the conception of Isaac. The next time we gather on Sunday night and, and, and consider this passage, next week, we will see Isaac is conceived, right, and born. And so at the end of the day, Abraham's issue was in not trusting the promise of God that he would have a son. In fact, not trusting in the, the promise of the gospel because that was the good news that God had given to the world. Through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And so Abraham is failing to trust the gospel. He is failing to trust the promises of God. But how many of us, how many of us have sin strategies we think aid us and can help us to cope with our troubles. Richard Phillips asked this, what would be the kind of honest biography that the Bible provides reveal about us? And so just like the Bible provides these honest biographies of these men of faith who had warts, if a spiritual biography was written about us, what would it say about us? And God is so concerned. He is. He is so concerned, as I said this morning, with our Christ-likeness, with our growth in faith, our growth in godliness, our growth in holiness, that he will provident, providentially work in our circumstances so that that remaining dross can continually be exposed. Because that which is not known about us in our hearts cannot be mourned over. And that which is not mourned over can't be repented of. And so if you have these besetting sins that, that have a tight grip on you, trust me, God will continue to put you in circumstances and in relationships that expose those sins. Another point here we could just say before we get to the next part of the passage and this is particularly to the men and to the husbands and to the fathers. The progress or the digress of your spiritual lives will have a profound impact on your wives and will have a profound impact on your children. We're going to see later that Isaac commits these same sin patterns. It's quite remarkable. We cannot live men with the false notion that our little inconsistencies and compromises are mine and mine alone. There is always collateral damage, starting with our families. 
And so we see, first of all, this relapse from Abraham. The next thing we see is a revelation. Interestingly enough, uh, it comes through a dream to a pagan king, Abimelech. Look with me in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream. Incidentally, Genesis is the book of first. This is the first time we see in the scripture that God reveals himself in a dream. So he comes to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken. She is a man's wife. Interestingly enough, this is before the giving of the law, and certainly Abimelech is not a part of the covenant community, but this reminds us that the world is accountable to God because of this man's behavior or this man's sin in response to Abraham's sin, he is accountable to be judged. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So we see here that Abimelech is protesting uh, that he did not know about Abraham's lie, Abraham's um, his fibbing, his, his deceit, his craftiness. And he uses words like integrity and innocence. Now, he's not saying that he was perfectly righteous. That's not what he's saying here. He is saying in this particular circumstance, he was not guilty of, of, of covertly, overtly uh, taking a man's wife. Now, we know that he was because here's a man who has a harem. And we know since Genesis 2.24, it is God's will uh, for a man to be married to only one woman. Not only that, he was going to take Sarah against her will. So he was guilty of that, but he's referring here to this relative innocence in not knowing that she was a man's wife. In verse 6, then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Not in the ultimate sense, but in the relative sense. Again, uh, he did not know that Abraham was lying. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That is the grace and mercy of God. How many times has God protected us from destructive sins in various ways perhaps you don't even know about? And, and here in this case, we see that he does that. He does that even with unbelievers. And, and so we have so many reasons to praise our God. There are mercies that we are not aware of where he protects us from ourselves. Therefore, I did not let you touch her now. Then return the man's wife 
for he is a prophet. Incidentally, uh, Genesis, how many times have I said this is a book of firsts? This is the first time we read the word prophet in the Bible. Abraham was a prophet. It's not the most flattering chapter with regard to this prophet. Again, this reminds us that Abraham's a prophet. We need a greater prophet than Abraham. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And so we see God intervening on Abraham's behalf by no merit of Abraham, in spite of Abraham. Sometimes, and I would say probably more than we even realize, God intervenes in our situation and he spares us from the full consequences of our sin. That's his mercy and his grace. He spares us from the full consequences of our sin. I would venture to say he does that daily because every sin we commit deserves, deserves judgment, deserves death. And so daily, he spares us from the full consequences of our sin. Now, does that encourage us to sin? No. If you get that, it actually makes you love God more and hate your sin more. Well, you see him protecting Abraham here. Just think, though, about what would have happened if Sarai, Sarah had just had one night with Abimelech. Just one night. If, if Abimelech and Sarah had had that one moment alone. You remember, she's not pregnant yet. She doesn't get pregnant till Genesis 21. The son of promise would not be born until chapter 21. And so it's very likely if they had had that one night together, the question would have been raised, who is Isaac's true father? And we are reminded throughout Genesis that the covenant promise is to Abraham, not to Abimelech. And so God protects his seed here in spite of Abraham. Praise God for his mercy and his grace. Now, in verses 8 to 13, uh, it gets really ironic because Abimelech, the pagan king, acts as the sage to the prophet. Again, we've seen Abraham is the prophet, but here in verses 8 to 13, we see a rebuke. We see a rebuke. We have seen this revelation. We've seen Abraham relapse, but here we see a rebuke. Abraham is confronted with his sin from a pagan king. Sometimes the world shames believers, and God uses that to wake us up. Look in verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Sounds just like Pharaoh in Genesis 12. And how have I sinned against you? that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. My goodness, he's telling a prophet that, a prophet of Israel, a prophet of God. 
And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And he had a, perhaps a, a good reason to think that, right? But he's making excuses. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And then when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Just really remarkable that this man of faith, this prophet, is willing to compromise his wife for his own temporal good. Now keep in mind, Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Instead, at this point, he's potentially being a curse to the nations. That appears to be the very thing that he has done. And again, important here, Sarah is not yet pregnant. She gets pregnant in Genesis 21. The, the chapter order here matters. Why is this important? Well, uh, she conceives Isaac in Genesis 21. So how in the world could Abraham's life actually be at stake when God has promised him that he would have a son? The son hasn't come. So again, Abraham's behavior, compromising his wife, lying, his lack of integrity, all of that is the fruit. The root is he does not trust God. He does not trust God and his promises. God had promised him a son. And God, ironically, uses a pagan king to expose Abraham's sins. And two things, at least two things are exposed. First of all, his unbelief in God's promises. Again, he's a man like us. He, he believes, but help our unbelief, Lord. But secondly, he exposes, and this is so common with many of us, a victim mentality, a victim mentality. Indeed, notice he blames his wanderings on God. That's exactly what he says. He says, again, God, verse 13, caused me to wander from my father's house. He caused me. He's behind this. And so here we see this victim mentality, and this is common when we sin. Well, I wouldn't have done this had this not happened, had this person not done this to me, or this person had not said this to me. That's the spirit of Abraham here in this passage. And it's precisely, we sang about this tonight. I didn't know Adam was going to sing that song. By the way, when you sing, the, when we sing the love of God, um, us older generation, you can't help but think about George Beverly Shea, right? Well, you think about the love of God, but you also, sing, you also think about George Beverly Shea singing that song at so many of the Billy Graham crusades. Well, Adam didn't know uh, that I was dealing with this, but here it's precisely because of God's love for us that he will not allow our sin to remain unexposed because he wants to separate us from that which will ultimately destroy us. 
And so God's love comes in very many different packages, all right? In this particular case, it was a painful expression of his love. And my guess is that with this many people in the room, many of you have testimonies of how God's love has been shown this way in your life because he refuses to allow our sin to go undetected lest we cherish that sin unless we die in that sin. So this is a severe love, a severe mercy that we see with Abraham here. But that brings us to the final part of this passage, the restoration, the restoration. So you have from relapse to restoration. It's the story of redemption all found in one chapter of the Bible. The restoration of Abraham, atonement for sins. Look with me in verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Now, I want you to think about something. We're going to see that a good period of time has passed since Abraham lied and, and since Sarah came into Abimelech's harem. Now, why do I say that? Because in verse 17 and 18, it's clear that because of that situation, God had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. You don't find that out within a week. It would have taken many weeks to realize that God, or perhaps even months, we don't really know. And so Sarah has been separated from her husband for, for a, a goodly period of time. Um, but significantly, it's only in spite of Abraham, it's only when he prays that God lifts his curse of sterility on Abimelech. He said, Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brothers a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all. You may have a footnote there. I'm going to come back to that. Who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. We've seen he's the mediator, haven't we? He prayed over Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the mediator. And God healed Abimelech. In spite of Abraham, he healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. And so uh, one man sinned and, and there is a consequence that, that hits all of his people. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And so here we see God's grace um, that he uses Abraham in spite of Abraham. That's a testimony every believer here could confess. Let me close with just a few application thoughts on this. These aren't comprehensive. You could add to these, I'm sure. But first of all, do you see the stubbornness of entrenched sin patterns, even in a believer 
like Abraham. These are patterns that developed early in his life. So if sin takes root in our behavior patterns, it's a really tough thing, all right, to, to root them out. That's why young people don't think if you, once you get older, the sin patterns you develop now uh, will easily be resolved. I used to have a teammate in college who would say, man, this is the days to party. These are the days to party. When I get out of college, I'll get right with God. And guess what? A lot of poor choices were made during those days that still have consequences in his life. Now, keep in mind, Abraham has been justified. Genesis 15, 6. He believed God and it was accounted to him as righteous. But God removes the stain in his judgment book on us before he removes the stain in our behavior and character. Now, there's a reason for that, and, 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 and that's another sermon for another day. But the rest of our lives, we battle the consequences of sin patterns that have developed in our life over time. All right? This is a warning to us. In fact, these sin patterns can be generational. I do not believe in generational curses. I do believe in generational patterns. And so Isaac will end up committing the same kinds of sins. Where did he learn it? Well, he learned it from his father, all right? And these patterns are developed long before even Isaac has been conceived. Sin patterns come with high interest rates. Sin is expensive. That's one of the purposes of this text to teach us that. Sin can be forgiven, but sin is expensive. Second, now this sounds a little bit like health, wealth, and prosperity, but it's not. Some, certainly not all, health issues are due to sin. Some, certainly not all, and we certainly don't have the, oftentimes the capacity to know if a particular health issue that we have is due to our sin. But some of the health issues that some people experience are due to their sin. You say, well, this is Old Testament. Well, let me give you a couple of New Testament, uh, Testament texts. James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There are certain sins that can lead to health issues. And we certainly probably don't have the, 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 um, the revelation, direct revelation to always make those direct connections. How about this one, 1 Corinthians 11, where the people of God in Corinth are abusing the, the Lord's table. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks without just uh, drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. They were abusing the Lord's table and it had led to sickness and even death. By the way, discerning, <laughs> discerning the body, what does that tell you? The Lord's Supper is a church's 
ordinance. Let me give you another implication from this passage. God has a sovereign plan and he will not allow sin to thwart it. Boy, if it could be thwarted, it would have been thwarted in, in Genesis 20. And how encouraging is that as we think about what's happening in Israel? Now, think again about our text from the human angle. This timing of all this was so very bad because again, if Sarah had spent one night with Abimelech, and then a short time later gets pregnant with Isaac, that would have forever raised questions. And God's good and sovereign plan overrides their evil. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. If evil is committed against you, be of good cheer. God is sovereign over the evil. And so God interfered before this question could ever be raised. Let me give you a couple of um, applications with regard to how this points us to Christ. Christ's person shines in this passage by contrast. So we see here again, Abraham is the mediator. He, he is the priest. He's the prophet. It is through his mediation that God brings healing to Abimelech and his people and then in Genesis 22, we see how great Abraham's faith is as he lays his son up on the altar. And yet we know, even through Genesis 20, Abraham is not the hope of the world. Abraham is not the hope of the world. We need one better than Abraham. We need one greater than Abraham. We need a better priest, king, the true seed of Abraham would never compromise his bride by lying or deceit. In fact, his integrity, his righteousness would actually put him on the cross for the redemption of his bride. One final point as we close here. We actually see a type of Christ's atoning work through the actions of Abimelech, this pagan king. Now, where do we see that? Well, if you'll look in verse 16, you may have a footnote in your Bible. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. You may have a footnote in your Bible. Monty doesn't because the King James actually gets it right. Amen. Amen. When I feel like Monty may be falling asleep on me, I quote the KJV. And he comes alive. So notice in the footnote, it is a covering of eyes for all. So this purchase price, a thousand pieces of silver, literally it reads, it is a covering of eyes for all. That's what atonement is. It's what atonement is. The purchase price covers the eyes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we all recognize that God is omniscient. Okay? And so if he is omniscient, that means he can never 
forget anything. So how can he forget our sin? That's an important question. What he does is he puts the blood of Jesus before his eyes as a covering for his eyes so that his holy eyes can only see the purchase price, the shed blood of Jesus instead of our sin when he looks at you. I heard about this little girl that was asked, and we have young girls and young boys in, 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 this, in our ministry at Lakeview about this sharp as well. I've heard some remarkable theological uh, points from our young people. Praise God for that. I told you a couple weeks ago, Ed, Ed Moore asked one of the young guys, what are y'all uh, learning in, in Sunday school? He said, justification. Okay, so uh, we love our young people. They're all a bunch of little theologians. But this little girl was asked, is there anything that God can't do? Is there anything that's impossible for God? And here's what she said. Yes, it's impossible for God to see through the blood of Jesus and look at my sin. That's a good word. That is a good word. And, and this narrative is an example of that. In fact, get this, as ugly as this chapter is, and boy, if you could blush in heaven, Abraham is still blushing. But as ugly as this chapter is, for the remainder of the Bible, it's never brought back up. Instead, what you read is about Abraham's faith, about his faith in the promises. Romans 4, Galatians 3, Hebrews 11. Abraham is described as the consummate man of faith. Why? Because the blood covered the eyes of God the Father, the purchase price so that he could not see Abraham's sins. And that's how he is with every believer. So Adam and the musicians come forward. We, we want to give you an opportunity to respond if you have never trusted in the God of Abraham, uh, in the mediator who is greater than Abraham. Abraham was great, but man, uh, we've been through 20 chapters and we recognize, Lord, send someone greater than Abraham. And he has. And he has. He has sent the consummate priest king, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God. He never, ever committed lies or any kind of deceit in order to save himself instead of the bride. He laid his life down so that the bride might live. That's the bridegroom you need. That's the prophet and priest you need. And we want to give you an opportunity to respond to him as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.